This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. We'll have more news this evening, but first, the latest genealogy, a Roddenberry podcast. Episode 14, Radioactive. Welcome to Mission Log Genealogy. I'm Earl Green. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Genealogy, we skulk in the shadows, closely following Gene Roddenberry's early TV writing career through its many twists and turns as he embarked on a creative career in the golden age of television. This week, our Geiger counter is ticking over because this script is radioactive. Oh no, we've been exposed to a lethal dose? No, 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 Earl. I mean, the literal title of this episode is Radioactive. Oh, don't scare me like that, man. I mean, that in and of itself isn't lethal, but Earl will be back with a lethal dose of trivia. Trust me on this in a moment. But first, here is how you can reach us. Genealogy is meant to be entertaining and informative, but it's also the beginning of an ongoing conversation about the works of Gene Roddenberry, Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on future installments of Genealogy. But before we get really radioactive, let's talk about something that's really important to us, and that is our Patreon and our Discord. Splendid chaps, all of them. Everyone. It's actually going to be a feature of the show today, not a bug, that I'm going to mention that I don't do a whole lot of social media anymore. But one place I do like hanging out, one safe space, is the Mission Log Discord. One of the things that I think in our almost second full year, maybe third full year, we've created such a great community of not just fans, but friends. And that was apparent when when I hosted the the Thanksgiving Friendsgiving uh, for this year, where so many people had a chance to call in for so many different places. Uh, we had people from the Netherlands, we've had people from Southern California, from Michigan, from Ohio, and come together as friends and talk about their fandoms, their similarities, their differences, and do exactly what we set out to do with Discord, and that is to bring all of these people that want to leave a certain toxicity on social media behind in favor of something that supports and promotes a little bit more supportive discussion. One of our posters, and I forget the screen name, you'll have to forgive me, you know, recently said something like, oh, I, I don't know if I should say this here. And we were like, say it. And he said it. And I was like, no lie detected. That's how scared people are about opening up on social media anymore because it just seems like the world is waiting to pounce on you. That is not the case on our Discord, and that is why I love it so much. 
So we just wanted to thank everyone for supporting us all this time. And uh, we have so many new faces and friends that are supporting us on Patreon, signing on to the Discord. And we just want to give thanks to our newest supporters, Mei Ling, Jennifer, Michael, Tammy, Gildara, Elizabeth, Peter, and Anna, thank you so much for all of your different contributions. If you would like to see how you would like to support us, please visit patreon.com slash mission log. Take a look at the support tiers that fit your needs. But for as low as $1, you can join our mission log discord and take part in, I have lost count of how many particular sub-thread communities that we've created from food to obviously Star Trek to all the mission log shows to classic movies to pop culture, whatever you think you desire as a pop culture fan or a fan of Star Trek or whatever you are a fan of, it's either there for you or we can create it for you. Please feel free to join us. Become one of us. One of us. I think that was a line from a movie. Join us at patreon.com slash mission log. And also, before we get to trivia, a little reminder, Genealogy will be taking a break for a couple of weeks, but we will return on January 8th with our next episode. And on our own feed, we will no longer be showing up in the main mission log feed. Keep an eye on podcasts.roddenberry.com for more details. We hope you join us when we make the jump. So, Earl, now that our Rankins are at an all-time high, here you are with this week's Lethal Dose of Trivia. Yeah, this trivia is so rad. Thank you, Norm. Dear listeners, I hope you can be patient with me today because we have a massive but necessary info dump of trivia because we're dealing with a new show, I Led Three Lives. We are rewinding a little bit chronologically and pretty vaguely, there is nothing like a precise air date for this episode or most other episodes of I Led Three Lives. This is from the show's third season and aired sometime in 1956, prior to Gene's retirement from the LAPD in June of that year. So this is actually something that aired in between episodes of Highway Patrol. The script we have in the Roddenberry archives is interesting. It's the final master script dated January 3rd, 1956. However, every interior page, every single page, they are all blue revised pages dated January 9th, 1956. Now, in scriptwriting terms, this is a dead giveaway of what is called a page one rewrite. The entire thing had to be rewritten. An entire earlier version of the script was deemed unusable, and sadly, to the best of my knowledge, that first draft has not been located in the Roddenberry archives. In less formal scriptwriting jargon, a page one rewrite is also called an oh sh because Gene had to start from scratch. Maybe the basic plot outline carried over from the earlier draft to the revisions in some broad form. But what it means is, we paid you for the script, but we can't use this. Fix it. I have a feeling that January 4th through the 9th of 1956, a Wednesday through the following Monday, were not Gene Roddenberry's favorite days of his early writing career. There are some actual comments from Gene about this show, which I will save for later, and you'll understand why when you hear them. For now, let's explain the show itself. This is the first of two episodes Gene Roddenberry wrote for the half-hour spy drama I Led Three Lives, and this is a case where I feel it is important to give you significant background information on the show itself 
before we summarize this particular contribution of genes. The series was based very loosely on the 1952 memoir by former FBI informant Herbert A. Philbrick. Herb was an advertising executive who, under the watchful eye of the FBI, infiltrated the Boston cell of the Communist Party in the 1940s as America was reaching peak levels of the Red Scare. The show ran for three seasons from 1953 through 56, but in all of that time, only a handful of actual excerpts from Philbrick's book were adapted faithfully for the screen. The remainder of the episodes were entirely fictitious in the style of Philbrick's book, despite this disclaimer at the end of each episode stating, This television series is based on material from the files of Herbert A. Philbrick. Although this photoplay is based on actual events, the characters, events, and firms depicted are fictitious. Any similarity to actual persons living or dead, or to any firms, is purely coincidental. Translation, we're promoting this as being true, but we made it up. Please don't sue us. The only actual facts at the heart of most of the show's episodes were that Philbrick was, as the show's own intro stated, living three lives, citizen, communist, counter-spy. The show was actually quite popular, feeding into the fear of communist encroachment on the American way of life. It was nominated for two years running for the now-extinct Best Mystery category in the Emmy Awards, and the Freedoms Foundation touted I Led Three Lives as the best show on TV in 1955. Now, that same foundation was closely linked to the Valley Forge Foundation, which had been touring a public information attraction called Alert America in recent years, whipping up fear of imminent atomic attack and trying to stir up support for the Civil Defense Initiative. Senator Joseph McCarthy was whipping up a panic over communist influence in American mass media, kicking off a dark chapter of Hollywood's history as the House Un-American Activities Committee demanded names of suspected communist sympathizers in Tinseltown, leading to accusations that destroyed quite a few careers. So-called loyalty reviews at various levels of government jobs also put several thousand people out of work with no recourse, no appeal, and very little chance of finding new work in the private sector. I Led Three Lives in hindsight may have been Hollywood itself trying to say, hey, it's not us because the show was feeding into that fear on purpose. And it was during the show's third and final season, during which the stories were growing increasingly improbable, that Gene, still using his Robert Wesley pseudonym since he was still employed by the LAPD, pitched and sold a couple of scripts to I Led Three Lives. It makes you wonder what the people behind the show would have thought if they had any inkling that Gene would eventually set an entire science fiction series in the future with a post-scarcity economy that apparently has no money, until those occasions when it does. Once again, we have future superstar TV producer Quinn Martin supervising audio for another Ziv series. We've seen his name in the credits before, and Quinn is as early in his storied TV career as Gene was in his. Now, something you might not know is that having worked on some of the same Ziv shows for years, once Quinn Martin did begin to climb the ladder toward creating TV series of his own, Gene was one of the people he collaborated with, at least briefly. Ziv put Gene and Quinn Martin together to develop a potential new series, which had the thrilling working title of Junior Executive, but it never quite got off the ground, although some elements of it later creep into a later Gene series, The Lieutenant. You'll hear the scientific term Rankins in this show, which is a unit of measurement for exposure of X-rays and gamma rays, 
though in 1953 a better understanding of the absorption of radiation saw the Rankin deprecated in science and engineering literature to be replaced by the RAD. And even the RAD is not used as often anymore as the current units of measurement tend to be grays or sieverts, depending on the application and what is being measured. This episode of I Led Three Lives does exist on YouTube, though the copy posted there has a lot of tape and film breaks that lose audio every time. A publisher has started releasing the show on manufacturer-on-demand DVD very slowly. They haven't even made it all the way through Season 1, so this episode, if it ever does get a DVD release, may take a while. Herb, has anyone in the party mentioned the name Rita Houts? She's in the city, but out of contact with the party. We're all assigned to search for her. Then you should know she's hired a stooge as bodyguard, a comrade Leon Thorson. Thanks. Uh, Prentice said she has something of extreme value to the party. Herb, she has a sample of one of our latest nuclear materials, radioactive cobalt-122. An isotope? Stolen from the laboratory where she works. Herb, just how much do you know about isotopes? Casual reading. Small pellets, innocent-looking but dangerous, have to be shielded with lead. Do you know what a rentgen is? It's a measurement of radioactivity. A person can stand an exposure of so many rentgens. Isn't that about it? Yeah, that's about it. Herb, we know where Rita is. We watched her steal the isotope. We followed her. We're staked out on her house. I don't understand. You let her steal the isotope. It's a calculated risk. She's just a part of a nationwide communist attempt on our atomic secrets. They've gone all out. Herb Philbrick, mild-mannered advertising executive, leads not one, but two secret lives. He poses as a loyal member of the Communist Party infiltrating the United States. But in reality, he's an informant for the FBI infiltrating the Communist Party. That's three lives in total, and two of them are very dangerous. Act 1. Herb Philbrick emerges from work and gets in his car. There's a string tied to the gear shift, a sign he knows too well. His FBI contact, Special Agent Jerry Dressler, needs to see him pronto. But whoa, not so fast. Herb's contact in the Communist Party, Comrade Prentice, opens up the passenger side door of Herb's car and just has a seat. Well, howdy, Comrade. What's up? Prentice is all business. The party needs Herb to suspend his entire business and social calendar for a top-secret mission. Herb is to find a woman named Rita Houts, another Communist Party member, because she has something in her possession of vital importance to the party. Prentice won't answer any questions about what that something might be. He just wants Herb to find Comrade Rita and report back to him. Oh, gee, is that all? With that, Prentice exits the car, and Herb drives to a construction site to meet with Jerry Dressler. Dressler has a top priority mission for Herb. He needs him to find a woman named Rita Houts because, hey, wait a minute. But Dressler has a little bit more intelligence to share than Prentice did. The item that Rita has that the commies want is a stolen plutonium isotope. If she delivers that to the Red's atomic scientists, they suddenly have a leg up on developing, well, you know, the bomb. Unlike the party, the FBI knows exactly where Rita is staying, and they know she has a party loyalist as a bodyguard. 
Jerry's got a little present for Herb. Here's your very own Geiger counter, buddy. It'll help you find a stolen sample of nuclear material. Oh, and by the way, if this meter reads exposure to 300 Rankins, you'll be dead in five minutes. Good luck. We're all counting on you. No pressure. Herb drives to the address provided and circles the block, keeping watch. Sure enough, there's the woman in the photo given to him by Comrade Prentice. It's Comrade Rita and her hired henchman walking down the street. Herb drives down the street, executes a dazzlingly clumsy five-point turnaround because power steering hasn't been invented yet, and then parks his car near the house. When Rita and friend are safely out of sight, Herb breaks into their house, Geiger counter in hand. Oh, should this be reading 110 Rankins? Oh, no, wait, 170, 195, 200? Did these crazy commies set a trap by leaving the plutonium isotope out of its lead container? What's going on here? 400 Rankins? Act 2. Herb narrows it down to the one place the plutonium could be. Uh-oh, Comrade Rita and Comrade Leon are back. Herb hides in a corner. He can't get out without being seen, and he can't get far enough away from the isotope to absorb less than 200 Rankin dose of radiation. But he does overhear a really interesting conversation. It turns out that Rita and Leon are holding the radioactive isotope hostage from their own beloved Communist Party. They want 100,000 bucks to hand it over. Now you know, that sounds like an awful lot of capitalism to me, but... Oh, hey, they put it back in its lead container, so that's good. They leave the room and Herb finally has his opening to sneak out of the house. He meets once again with Jerry Dressler. Why, Herb, you must have had a successful mission. You're practically glowing. Um, too soon? We'll have a doctor take a look at you as soon as all this is over. Once Jerry knows that Rita's holding the isotope hostage, a new plan is set in motion. Jerry has his own lead container, and it contains its own deadly radioactive isotope, but it's useless for weapons manufacture. The communist atomic scientists can study it all they like, but they'll get nowhere, and Herb has to break back into Rita's house to swap out the isotopes before she can do a deal with Comrade Prentice to fork over her own precious deadly cargo. Everyone got that? Rita, Leon, and Prentice all show up a little bit early. Oh, hey, howdy, I'm Comrade Herb, just trying to execute my orders, Comrade Prentice. Comrade Rita isn't satisfied, though, if Herb is just nosing around and doesn't really know anything. Well, let's put him to the test. Hey, why don't you go pick up that lead container with your bare hands? Herb has to play it cool and play dumb, even knowing that being in that close proximity could be the end of him. But Comrade Prentice calls off this loyalty test so he can hand over the money and take his nuke nugget for the greater glory of the Communist Party. The deal is done, and the Reds are left with radioactive material that won't do them any good. And Herb? Well... He lives to continue his work on behalf of the FBI, and he probably still has a healthy glow after all this. The end. Excellent job, Norm. You know, when I was watching this episode, I tried to apply the Allen rule, and the Allen rule is now a thing, to the opening music of I Led Three Lives to see if you could sing I Led Three Lives to the theme tune. I couldn't really (laughs) find a way... I'm going to wait for Alan himself to weigh in on that on the Mission Log Discord. But I I was just hearing too many notes to carry that off. That's funny that uh, Alan's got a a rule now, which is, uh, you know what? Good for you, man. You know, you've elevated yourself to that kind of 
status. It's a thing. It, it needs to be the next T-shirt. Yeah. I loved in this um, in the series production credits how the TV logo. So if in your mind's eye, imagine seeing the words I led and then the big number three and then lives like all in a line. The TV logo looked like that. And then it faded into the book logo of, of Philbrick's original book cover art. And I, I really thought that was smart from kind of like a, a mass market perspective when it comes to bridging the book community and the radio community, from what I understand, to this TV community. So good job, marketing executives, to, to, to kind of like, you know, streamline all of that with one logo. I wonder if Philbrick himself insisted on that, like, hey, yeah, I got books to sell here. Totally. You know, it's just... Keep everything like in the same community, like Apple. The narrator says the names, dates, and places have been changed, but the story is based on fact. Where have we heard this before? Also, here's a more rhetorical question. In 1956, who had the resources to actually fact check all of this? <laughs> yeah, and I think they're counting on that because, as I noted, they ran out of usable material from the book to adapt to the TV series. And it started, it becoming, it became an exercise in making it up. Okay, so here's something that's very cool. John Champion, I am calling you out. This is a Bond reference. So I'm wondering, in the beginning of this episode, if the piece of string that Philbrick saw on his gear shift, was that actually like some kind of actual real-life spy signal since this is quote-unquote accurate in some way. I remember in Dr. No that James Bond actually, well, this is Sean Connery. He pulled uh, a strand of his hair off of his head and he kind of plastered it across his closet doors. And then when he returned later to his hotel room, it fell off those doors, meaning that someone opened the doors and triggered or quote unquote hair triggered the closet doors, so to speak. So I'm wondering if this is something that was real. What do you think, Earl? I mean, like, again, we're talking about the names, dates, and places have been changed, but the story is based on fact. Is this a FBI thing? That I don't know, but it was very interesting how you phrase that, that Sean Connery did that and not Bond, because, you know, by the time we get to the untouchables, the man's bald. Philbrick asks Comrade Prentice, what's the nature of this emergency? That is, if I'm entitled to know. But the moment I heard that phrase and the moment I looked in the script to make sure that I heard that phrase correctly, there's little Robert Picardo in the back of my head saying, please state the nature of the communist emergency. There was a lot of kind of, quote unquote, pre-mission impossible energy here. You know, you had like your mission, you know, from from Prentice and then take, you know, this picture from Rita and destroy it when you've memorized it. So, you know, we're getting into that espionage era, right? Yeah. This podcast will destruct in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so Rita has a plutonium and today in, in kind of like the, the TV series and movie series today, it's, it's, it's still used very effectively. albeit like maybe ubiquitously to kind of like move the plot along. But then in 1956, I mean, think about this. This is the era of the post atomic horror of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and just the sheer mention of plutonium, I mean, aside from the stuff that, you know, Doc Brown stole from, you know, from the Libyans, and that's terrifying, right? Now, like, I also like the PSA between, like, Philbrick and his FBI contacts, like, hey, plutonium is, is bad. We should do something about this. 
<laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting because I think some of that mindset persists today. Except, you know what plutonium powers now that I'm very fond of? It powers automated spacecraft. I thought you were going to say flux capacitor, but that's just me, you know? Yeah, so. I mean, uh, there were pellets of plutonium in radioisotope thermonuclear generators mounted to the Voyager missions. Curiosity and Perseverance rover. Anything that goes beyond where you can expect to have enough sunlight for solar has got to be powered by plutonium. Plutonium is not exactly an element that is in deep supply. It's rare. It was rare. It's still rare. It's more rare now. And there are space missions that have literally been delayed by years because there was not enough plutonium on hand to power them. Watching this episode, in the current state of what it is, because it's not in the best preserved state possible, even so, there's a certain quality of writing there that Gene brought to this. There's a tension, right? that Philbrick brought to going to Rita's house, finding the exposed plutonium, and his inner monologue talking about, if I hit this many retkins, then I'm going to be irradiated without any possibility of being saved by modern medicine. You can almost feel in that writing that Philbrick is absorbing the radiation as it's happening. I guess which begs the question, and again, this is in Act 1. We haven't seen what happened in Act 2. Rita and her communist handler, Leon, is it possible that they've already been lethally exposed? I'm just wondering if this is some kind of suicide mission. There's a certain amount of... You read it as tense. Some of it I read, unfortunately, as cheesy, super cheesy. Really? Yeah. Aww. It, it, and it's a style thing. It's a difference between then and now. You know, for the time, it was probably unbearably tense, but some of the overbaked, overdramatic internal monologue is just, it's a bit much, you know, how much of this can I take before I am dead? No, I, no, I get that though, but it's like, like if, if, if I were like the, the, the intended audience, like the, the teen or the tween of that era, like anywhere between like say 12 and 18, I'd be chewing my fingernails off. You know, like watching this, like, is he going to get irradiated? Is he not? Like, is he going to die? Is he not? Like, how how much risk is this man going to put himself through just to get this information back to the FBI? I'm not saying that I'm that guy. I'm just saying that my cuticles are bleeding. That's all. You know, as for whether <laughs> it's a, a suicide mission for Rita and Comrade Leon, you know, I'm sure that's kind of baked into the cake. It's like, oh, these people are dangerous because they will do anything. Now, going into Act 2, so from what I understand from the dialogue, the isotope, Rita has purposefully, purposefully left it outside of its 50-pound lead pig casing. So the lead pig is basically this giant kind of like container, like a vase. Or if, you know, if, if you're that dog out there and, you know, in the commercials, it says vase, right? But it's, it's a vase of, of lead and she left it out so that if anyone, damn, this is, this is vengeful, man. If, if anyone, like a communist party member or an FBI agent, anyone wanted to find it, they were literally exposed to a lethal dose of radiation. That is extreme. That is vengeful extreme, dude. Seriously. 
And you know what? That house probably has a half-life now, so I wonder what the Zillow listing looks like. You could probably see it from satellite. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the isotope, the, the plutonium. And here's the thing. I wanted to describe this this plutonium, quote-unquote. You know, I'm doing air quotes here uh, as we're recording. It literally looks like a thumb drive. That's about as big as it is. It's worth one hundred thousand dollars in sale you know in terms of its value to the communist party who wanted to buy it from rita now remember folks the inflation rate from 1956 is now over one thousand percent of the value making the value of the isotope one hundred million dollars or if you want to do like the dr evil thing zoom in one hundred million dollars i mean that's important that's a lot of money that is a pretty good chunk of change which is why you send someone hardcore and vengeful like Rita and Comrade Leon instead of Stalker. <laughs> Comrade Leon just doesn't quite roll off the tongue. When when Philbricks goes uh, and uh, and seeks out Jerry, you know his FBI handler, he says that Rita's address was compromised because she wrote a letter to one of her friends. That's how they were able to find her. So Philbricks says, "quote unquote, when will they learn commies don't have friends?" I kind of kind of like took exception to this. I'm like, that's a little heavy-handed anti-communist sentiment there, Gene. I know that entertainment of the time was supposed to sway opinion, but for Gene, for me, that's a little bit much. How did you feel about that? That line in particular, I almost felt like that was possibly something that the story editor insisted on or dropped in themselves we're going to get into this more in discussion it's a propaganda piece and and it's classic it's classic othering they're not like us they don't have friends they don't form attachments they don't have loyalties they don't love like we do right and they have the the discipline right like i'm i'm sorry comrade this will said i'll I'll mention this in discussion but this was said you know time and again i apologize for not following the communist code of conduct yeah what does that mean yeah. Like, <laughs> and then you know? Prentice, that conversation in the car, I haven't been following the Communist Party's code of conduct. It has been noted, Yeah, is what uh, Prentice says after that, you know, in this menacing way, like keeping our eye, keeping on an eye on you, comrade. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a good thing that social media doesn't exist. There's an interesting kind of uh, dynamic going on. So there's this scene where Philbrick to Jerry, his FBI handler, is volunteering to expose himself to more radiation in order to exchange the FBI's fake quote-unquote plutonium for the real item in Rita's house. And I really thought it was really well-written. It's just a little heavy-handed that you're taking your quote-unquote hero character with a tie, Philbrick, and he would choose to rather die in service of America's interests than to stop communism from getting the plutonium and falling into the wrong hands. So... I don't know. It's like, did you feel like it was just getting laid on a little thick? Is that something we should save for discussion? What? This goes back to what we were talking about, how we had actually exhausted the material from the real Herbert Philbrick's actual book. The writers were having to come in and invent their own incidents, trying to hew to that style of his book. But over time, because so many stories had already been done, they had to keep amping it up to the point that it's pretty improbable. And I'm not saying that's, and that's not a solely on Gene. Every writer for this show in its third year 
was dealing with that. So for all of you out there uh, who haven't seen this or want to watch this before you actually like listen to what Earl and I are saying, you, know, you can go online and find, uh, at least on YouTube, you can find Radioactive. Because the end sequence, right, it may be a little vanilla, quote unquote, to today's audience. Vanilla being just very kind of bland and very kind of passe. But when I was watching this and trying to put myself in the mindset of a 1956 audience, I thought the ending was riveting. And in terms of Gene's writing, so Gene wrote this sequence and you don't feel like you're settled with who to trust, who to not trust. There's this showdown between Rita and Communist Party member Prentice about buying the isotope and then this whole time Philbrick's trying to get the isotope out of, you know, out of there into the hands of the FBI and everyone's getting bombarded with radiation. I would love to see this done today, like on Netflix or something like that. Like, you know, just just having that the threat just escalate between, okay, we're gonna like deliberate on all of this, and then there's radiation that's literally soaking us to death right now. You almost need the Geiger counter on the screen. Exactly. 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 Okay, so here's just just to kind of like remove a little bit of the serious out of the discussion, you know, and, and have a little bit more levity. I, <laughs> I thought the title could be changed to, instead of I led three lives, I led C lives, as in the letter C, because there are three words that start with the letter C that are repeated several times throughout the course of the episode. Citizen, communist, and counter spy. So if you wanted to like reboot this for a new series, I led sea lives. What do you think about that, Earl? What you really need to do, like if you're doing some great Saul Bass-style opening montage, is you need to find uh, something that starts with P. So you citizen, communist, counter-spy, and then zoom out, CCCP. Oh. Cyrillic for wait. USSR. Mm-hmm. Citizen, communist, counter-spy, Partisan. How do you like that? It works. Right? Not too bad. It works. Right? Trek Talks is coming your way. To benefit the Hollywood Food Coalition. It's on January 13th, and celebrities galore will be on hand. Will John wear pants? That's the operative question. Probably not. Come and watch co-host Bonnie Gordon. She's not here right now, but I can imitate her. Oh, John, you cannot. Yes, I can. Before we started recording this, we were talking about the tone of how we we're going to approach discussing this episode, because it's a very serious episode. We want to bring a little bit of levity, obviously, to the discussion. But one of the things that I felt very strongly about was setting the tone of the era of where we are, not necessarily like Gene's particular application of, of, of what we understand this era to be, but the era of where we are in terms of 
not just global history, but specifically American history. Okay. Here's a nice side note, you know, and I, and I want to thank everyone for your feedback out there in the audience for, for sending in, you know, comments and critiques about, you know, genealogy. But one of the most consistent types of feedback that we've been receiving uh, since we started genealogy are comments from listeners, you out there, regarding how first you turned into the podcast for a history lesson about Gene's career, but what you were pleasantly surprised about even more were some of the cultural and historical touchstones of this era, circa, you know, like 1950s, that these episodes encapsulate, which give us a greater understanding of when these episodes were produced. You know, it's a time capsule, in a way, of not just American history, but kind of global history. Uh, you've read some of these these comments, Earl. Yeah. I am by no means a professional or academic historian. I just... it. It trips all kinds of triggers in my brain to have this trivia and share this trivia. So I am relieved <laughs> more than anything mm. that everyone's kind of enjoying our natural tendencies to look this stuff up because context is not just for kings. It's for everybody. And it's important. Oh, oh I thought you were going to go there. Great reference. Great reference. I want to caveat this with saying that like neither Earl nor I are historians or experts in, you know, cultural histories, American cultural history, etc. But what I want to talk about though and set the stage for these next few episodes where we're talking about I led three lives. Based on the the nature of this show, I I feel that it's necessary to set a serious tonal context for the listening audience, i.e. you, our beloved listeners, who may not be as familiar with where we are with this story, where we are with the quote-unquote anti-communist persecutions and witch hunts, known at this time as McCarthyism and the Red Scare, and how unchecked the power fueled by paranoia led to the harassment, prosecution, and persecution of American citizens, which is deadly serious in terms of the razor fine lines that Philbrick, going back to this episode, Philbrick had to walk as a double agent. I want to read from Wikipedia about the quote unquote second red scare that occurred after World War II, World War II being 1939 to 1945. McCarthyism is something in American history for those of you out there, you know, from our global audience, this is American history. McCarthyism is very significant in terms of a turning point in American history. Senator Joseph McCarthy believed that there was an increased and widespread fear of communist espionage that was consequent of the increasing tension in the Cold War through the Soviet occupation of Eastern Europe the Berlin blockade and the end of the Chinese civil war. Again, this is from, this is from Wikipedia. You can do your own research about this. The confessions of spying for the Soviet union that were made by several high ranking U S government officials in the outbreak of the Korean war. So by this time from say 1948 to 1956, there is a global concern or certainly an American concern of the growth of communism and the communist movement that was happening globally, you know, in terms of who was supporting what and the subversion of anti-government sentiments based on what 
Joseph McCarthy believed or deemed that was dangerous to the United States. The events of the late 1940s and the early 1950s, and here are some, I'm, I'm editorializing this, but this is from Wikipedia. The trial of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg in 1953, the trial of Alger Hiss, the Iron Curtain from 1945 and 1991, around Eastern Europe in the Soviet Union, the first nuclear weapons test in 1949, surprised an American public, influencing popular opinion about the U.S. national security, which in turn was connected to the fear that the Soviet Union would drop nuclear bombs on the United States and the fear of the Communist Party of the United States of America, the CPUSA. If you paid attention, audience out there, if you paid attention to the, the works of the time, right, that were reflective of this, it's not uncommon that you would, like, basically make a list of certain movies, certain TV shows that would actually reflect this. So here's an interesting thing. In Canada, in 1946, the Kellogg-Tachereau Commission in, uh, investigated espionage after top-secret documents in, uh, concerning the RDX radar and other weapons were handed over to the uh, Soviets by a domestic spy ring. Now, here's something that's actually applicable to this episode. At the House Un-American Activities Committee, former CPUSA members and NKVD spies, Elizabeth Bentley and Whitaker Chambers testified that Soviet spies and communist sympathizers had penetrated the United States government before during and after World War II, other U.S. citizen spies confessed to their acts of espionage in situations where the statute of limitations on prosecuting them had run out. In 1949, anti-communist fear and fear of American traitors was aggravated by the Chinese communists winning the Chinese Civil War against the Western-sponsored Kuomintang, their founding of communist China, and later, China intervenes in the Korean War against U.S. ally South Korea. A few of the events during the Red Scare were also due to a power struggle between the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, and the Central Intelligence Agency. Hoover had investigated and aided some of the investigations of the CIA with quote-unquote leftist history, like Cord Meyer. This conflict could also be traced back to the conflict between Hoover and William J. Donovan going back to the first Red Scare, but especially during World War II. Donovan ran with the OSS, the CIA's predecessor. That's the Office of Special Services. They had differing opinions of the nature of the alliance with the Soviet Union, conflicts over jurisdiction, conflicts of personality, the OSS hiring of communists and criminals, agents, etc. Historian Richard Powers distinguishes two main forms of anti-communism during the period, liberal anti-communism and counter-subversive anti-communism. The counter-subversives, he argues, derives from a pre-World War II isolationist tradition of the right. Liberal anti-communists believe that political debate was enough to show communists as disloyal and irrelevant, while counter-subversives anti-communists believe that communists had to be exposed and punished. At times... Counter-subversive anti-communists accuse liberals of being equally destructive as communists due to an alleged lack of religious values or supposed, quote-unquote, red web infiltration into the New Deal. Much evident for Soviet espionage existed, according to Democratic Senator and historian Daniel Moynihan, 
with the Verona project consisting of, quote unquote, overwhelming proof of the activities of Soviet spy networks in America with names, dates, places and deeds, end quote. However, Moynihan argued that because sources like the Verona project were kept secret for so long, ignorant armies clashed by night. With McCarthy advocating an extremist view with a discussion of communist subversion was made into a civil rights issue instead of a counterintelligence one. While President Truman formulated that the Truman Doctrine against Soviet expansion is possible if he was not fully informed of the Verona intercepts and leaving him unaware of the domestic extent of espionage, according to Moynihan and Benson. Essentially, learning about this history of the Red Scare, McCarthyism, and the history thereof, you know, in terms of post-World War II communist, uh, you know, the, the communist threat, there's a lot of this leading into what we understand, what entertainment understood at the time in 1956 of who the enemy was, why the enemy was, but was the enemy the enemy? Is the enemy the enemy now? Because that phrase that you mentioned that, you know, oh, the, the liberals are soft on communist, maybe the liberals are communist, that's still in the political playbook now. We're still hearing that sort of thing deployed now. This actually started as kind of a funny ha-ha observation thing in the previous segment of the show when I was writing my notes. But the more I thought about it, the more it got under my skin as a serious thing. Literally, the first line of dialogue we hear, Philbrick's inner monologue, is Keep it natural. Keep moving, Philbrick. You haven't seen a thing. Just a piece of string on the gear shift. A few years ago, it would have meant nothing. Or was it a thousand years ago? Now flash forward to now, and Snopes is having to debunk weird viral social media posts like, I came out of the store and walked up to my car and found someone left their sunglasses hanging on my door handle, and now I'm shaking and crying. And it goes on that the reason for the shaking and the crying is that supposedly, sunglasses left on your door handle is somehow a universally recognized sign of being targeted by human traffickers? People get worked up over anything. There's always a bogeyman. Communist, terrorist, human traffickers, whatever the irredeemable bad guys du jour happen to be. And it's not that no such people exist. It's not that there's no threat. But are they really hiding around every corner? Are they waiting for you in the Target parking lot? Hey, even those of us who like to think we're less susceptible to this kind of paranoia or confirmation bias... We can still be gotten at. If you rile someone's emotions, you override their ability to reason. This is one reason I've given up spending much time on social media anymore. And apologies to any of our listeners who have tried to find me there, because I'm barely there. That's practically an entire machine designed to whip up your emotions and ride that surge of worry or paranoia or anger right past your higher logic centers and straight into your fight-or-flight instincts. It's insidious. People need to be taught widely to learn to spot these things. Brain traps, as our sister Roddenberry podcast, Shabam, calls them. Shabam! Shabam! And by the way, if you want a kids-safe podcast that does, in fact, teach about brain traps, I highly recommend Shabam for the whole fam. The thing is with, with what you're saying... There's a little bit of, of, of trepidation that I have with 
not only what social media like you know perpetrates you know in terms of like the global thought consciousness but what we're talking about here in you know in the 1950s and 1956 where there's one person in charge really and that's Joe McCarthy right of saying this is what communism is this is why we're hunting communism this is why all of our agencies, you know, at the federal or civil levels, you know, like the FBI, the CIA, you know, local police departments have to hunt down and find out who these perpetrators are, you know, like who these subversives are. But that doesn't necessarily make it true. Right. Again, like I said before, America needs something to fight. Right. They need to find something to blame something about. Right. And then there's this there's communism. They're like, well, because. There is a superpower that exists post-World War II. There's the United States. Most of Europe is gone. Fascist Italy is gone. Nazis are pretty much turned to dust unless you go to Argentina. So what does that leave you? It leaves you Russia, one of the largest military states in the Eastern Hemisphere. It doesn't necessarily made them bad. It made them a target. So... If you're a communist sympathizer, that means you are the agent of evil? I mean, is that, is that, is that too much of a broad stroke? This kind of feeds back into what we have mentioned in earlier episodes. We were talking about you know, characters repeating Bible verses in unlikely places because better that than allowing any of our characters and any of our fine primetime programming to resemble in any way these godless commies because it was such a pervasive line of thought America doesn't have a monopoly on it but boy when we do it we we go in we go all in we go big because these brain traps are 99% of the modern political playbook turn the other side into the other with a capital O convince the masses that the other is coming for their freedoms, or their livelihoods, or their loved ones, or their wealth. Pit them against the other. It worked in 1930s Germany, which is why that whole war happened that preceded all of this. But it is incumbent upon us now to be smart enough that we stop it from happening again, and we stop it from happening here. One of the things that really scares me, and gets a free ride right past my higher logic centers, chills me to the bone is the thought that we may already be too late. All right, Norm, I've noticed in the past I've been approaching this segment of the show from the angle of what are we learning about Gene and his script writing when the script or show of the week runs low on morals, meanings, and messages, and oftentimes you very helpfully still manage to find morals, meanings, and messages, because you've been doing this a lot longer than I have. But I feel like this is one of those weeks where there's not much moral meaning or message, but there is a lot of history and a lot of historical context to take into consideration. If you're thinking that this show sounds like the last place you would expect to find a Gene Roddenberry script, for the record... Gene agreed with you. Gene was interviewed by author Tom Stemple for Stemple's book Storytellers to the Nation, A History of American Television Writing, 
which I highly recommend for students of the art and occasionally cynically clinical science of crafting stories for the small screen. It includes interviews with such TV luminaries as Stephen Bochco, Rod Serling, Gore Vidal, Norman Lear, who we just recently lost at the time of this recording, Patty Chayefsky, and Gene Roddenberry, interviewed before he died in 1991, although the book didn't see print until 92. Actually, a lot of those names, a lot of those great writers are gone. The book does have a bit of a blind spot for dealing with women in the industry. I will warn you about that. But otherwise, it's a very, I find it a very useful reference. On page 60 of that book, Gene has this to say about working on I Led Three Lives. And here I am quoting Gene Roddenberry directly. It was fiction. I hate myself for having written two episodes. It was entirely trumped up. A lot of the activities of the rank-and-file members of the self-proclaimed Communist Party in the United States was mainly centering around organizing labor and establishing and strengthening labor unions. A far cry from I Led Three Lives and its super-organized sinister sleeper cells of red sympathizers actively working to topple the entire American way of life. I'm not saying there weren't a few bad actors in the mix. I am not saying that real espionage didn't happen. I'm not absolving anyone or anything, but this show really just seems silly in hindsight. Look out, there are commies in your cupboard. It's far from being Gene's best work. It's also not his worst. But with the benefit of that hindsight and a few decades of much more sophisticated TV storytelling, I Led Three Lives just seems like a format that doesn't lend itself too much in the way of good writing. Due to the nature of the show, it's fundamentally a propaganda piece. The status quo has to be maintained. Herb and the FBI will prevail over those wacky, zany commies every week. Hearing Gene say that, and this is at the time where he's in between with Ziv Productions as writer for Highway Patrol and this. What did he not know about this production that he felt that was in conflict with his personal interests? I think part of it was, I've got to crank out a script for something. I'm going to ask Fred Ziv what show he's got that needs scripts that I could pitch to because I've got a wife and kids to feed. So we're still in, the, in, in that mode. Like I'm going to write something regardless of what I believe the context is so that I can differentiate art and commerce for a paycheck. Yes, because Gene may be writing about communists, but he's doing so for a capitalist society's consumption. We're not saying that the Red Scare was not a real thing. It was. It destroyed and derailed many, many lives. I would refer you to actor and legendary acting coach Jeff Corey for an example. We did a nice capsule history of his life and career on the August 10th, 2022 episode of Roddenberry's Sci-Fi 5 podcast. But here was a renowned actor who should have been a rising star until someone, under pressure to name names, you know, either you name names or you yourself are implicated. That's how it worked. Someone pointed a finger at Jeff Corey as a communist sympathizer. You know, maybe he had been to one meeting or something. It destroyed his career. 
In the 50s, he couldn't get work. He was reduced to making a living by giving acting lessons in his garage. Leonard Nimoy was one of his students. He did make a comeback, both as an actor and a director. In fact, he guest starred in The Cloudminders on Star Trek in 1969, at a time when casting him or hiring him was still a little bit of a radical act. So I think Gene definitely knew the score. But for Jeff Corey and for so many people, what should have been a brilliant career was thrown off track, and things were never quite the same for him again. There was an artistic response to the Red Scare, and that has led to some absolutely brilliant work that has much longer legs historically than I Led Three Lives. The Invasion of the Body Snatchers was an allegorical response to the Red Scare, and so was one of my all-time favorite stage plays, The Crucible, written by Arthur Miller. If you're not familiar with The Crucible, it dodges the bullet by setting its story in the Salem Witch Trials, while subconsciously and not very subtly reminding you that this ridiculous dark chapter in history has happened before and can happen again if we let it. Now, I can't completely dismiss I Led Three Lives, its format and its excesses. You know, it's all part of the package because I've been through recent history and recent TV history. Think back to the post-9-11 period. You had shows like 24 Threat Matrix, The E-Ring, The Unit, Quantico, Homeland, and, to some extent, Battlestar Galactica was very much a post-9-11 response. And hey, I get it. The open-ended war on terror provides a lot of fuel for storytelling and action. You don't have to roll out the backstory because it's in the headlines every day. But some of this entertainment, and I am looking at you, Jack Bauer, really seemed like it was normalizing, if not glorifying, Things like enhanced interrogation techniques employed to try to root out terrorist cells and operatives. Some other beloved Star Trek writers have been on board for that ride. It's not just Gene. Manny Cotto, the producer who is often credited for turning Enterprise's fourth season around, moved on to become an executive producer of 24 as soon as Archer's Enterprise pulled into TV space dock for the last time. Because TV writers still have to feed their families, They are part of this capitalist system. They have to go where the work is. And I think we have all in our professional lives at one point or another had to do the thing where we just had to kind of pinch our nose, block out the smell, and just do the thing and cash the check. So the question really becomes, have things changed since I Led Three Lives was on the air? And anytime I hear anyone complaining about how woke so much TV has become, I feel like telling them, This is a necessary response to the programming that isn't. Because cop shows and military shows that lean decidedly right in many cases, they've always been a fixture of American TV. They get a free pass on the primetime schedule to promote those things. And of course, they're using honorable professions as cover for plenty of violence and pyro per long-standing TV tradition without really digging down into whether or not That is the best solution. As I've pointed out many times in past editions of Genealogy, police work and fictional shows based on police work, they are not going to expose you to people operating at their best. They are showing you people at their lowest. Criminals who, for whatever reason, whether the show is going to get into their tragic backstory or not, they've been forced into a corner where a life of crime is their only recourse. 
Is it a bad thing to have a counterbalance to that? To show you people as they might be if they strive to be their best? Might showing people striving to be their best selves not encourage and inspire viewers, some of whom really need that encouragement, to do the same? I think that is something prized by those of us who love what Gene created in the universe of Star Trek, years after he was slumming it writing a couple of this show's scripts. I think that you bring up a lot of fascinating points here, Earl. And I think that with when it comes to I3 Lives, you know, you're, you're dealing with um, a conflict between the art of commerce and the art of art. You know, obviously, like Gene, we've seen that Gene believes in certain sociopolitical ideals. I think that in this particular episode, we're seeing him be a functionary of entertainment and a functionary of being able to cash a paycheck to pay for a lifestyle that he is accustomed to maybe at this time, rather than somebody who's trying to explicitly, subversively, as Gene is known to do, anchor a message within this 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 medium of TV at the time, especially in 1956. As I mentioned before in discussion, you know, we are dealing with the quote unquote McCarthyist Red Scare. This is a real turning pivotal point in human history where people's lives have been ruined, like trajectories of human existence have been changed. So for having Gene to not only touch upon it, but at the same time, shy away from it, from the point of being able to cash a paycheck for me, knowing what Gene is about is a little disappointing, to be honest with you, because he is trying to promote a, a, a better message you know, for humanity, a better message for society, a better message for this government versus that government. I mean, of, of course, when we get to Star Trek, you know, all of that is like out the window when we finally get to the Federation and being able to put all of these different, uh, quote unquote, you know, uh, borders and uh, lines on a map, you know, to the wayside. It's a little disappointing that we're seeing him be a little bit more pro-American democracy, anti-communism, when I think that he's more of an intelligent writer to the point where he knows that that's not necessarily the case. It's no understatement to say, I can't wait to get past the other episode of I Led Three Lives and leave the show in the dust of history where it belongs as the bizarre curiosity that it is. Because I think the reason that there is any interest in tracing the history of Gene's writing at all is that he later comes around to showing us people attempting to be their best at the very least, even if there's still plenty of action and pew, pew, pew to be found in those stories. That's a really interesting way of phrasing where Gene is at the time to have him write something like this. And I'm not saying it's bad, right? I'm not saying that this particular episode, Radioactive, of I, I Led Three Lives is bad. It's just that we know, probably because of the secret defense of 117, and you know some of the other you know episodes where we felt that Gene was coming into prominence from say Highway Patrol or Mr. District Attorney, we know that there's that Gene quote unquote style that's emerging, and I feel that in this particular episode that he's not really embracing the gray area of where Philbrick could have been. There's a very cut and dry black and white American pro movement versus the anti-communist movement and the Red Scare of McCarthyism that's happening in this episode. So 
it's a little, to be honest with you, it's a little disappointing that he's kind of falling prey to, and this is just my assumption, Ziv production of saying, write a great script based on the contrivances and the complications and requirements of telling an anti-communist story for an audience. I, I, I mean, that's the way that I took it. Is that close? Am I completely off base? Sometimes when you're writing TV, that's the job. You know, you right? Gotta, no, I get that. I got to pay the mortgage, and right. You know, that's the position. Unfortunately, that Gene was in. He had to come up with something. You know, he wants to stay in Ziv's good graces because all of his work, with the exception of Secret Weapon of One Seventeen, has come from Ziv so far. Gene has to maintain that relationship with his employer. He was looking for work. This is a show that needed scripts. Hold your nose, take the plunge, cash the check. You know, that that it, it, you saying that, and if that is in fact the reality, makes his foray into science fiction and Star Trek so much more meaningful just because that's the story that he finally was able to tell. And he suffered through the art process of being able to get to that better version of humanity that he's always wanted to be able to illustrate. And if that's the case, then that's the case. That's the reality of the situation. Sometimes, you know, like as, as an audience, you know, we're a little bit distanced from the reality of being able to write as a career and, you know, as a paycheck to feel, you know, to feed the family and versus the art that we actually want to create to inspire people. And I don't think that this episode of I Led Three Lives is the former, the art that Gene wanted to create. And uh, it's a little disappointing that we've seen him get close to it and then revert back to something like this. But until then, though, Mission Log Genealogy is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Special thanks to the Roddenberry Repertory Players. Our cast this week featured Vic Sage as Herbert Philbrick and Robert Parson as Jerry Dressler. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows in the Mission Log Discord. If you have any material that might be of interest to us that isn't already on the Roddenberry Archive, drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. On the next genealogy, discredit police. Special thanks to consulting producers Matt Esposito, Omar Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Shabel, Paul Shadwell, and David Takachi. We'll be back next week with more of your favorite programs. This concludes our broadcast day. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.